we look at our lives sometimes and we think, what is happening? Where am I? What am I supposed to be doing? I don't even know how God is leading in this. And then you turn around and you're like, God is right there. And he says, no, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. I'm right here. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today is our sick friend, Karen. We won. <laughs> this time, I mean sick physically, not sick mentally. Sick. <laughs> this time. <laughs> this time. And we've got our friend, Tracy. Good morning. And we have our other friend, Amy. Hello. Amy, you just got back from an adventure. I did. I'm not usually a horse show person, and I took two of my horses to the Welsh National in Chickasha, Oklahoma, and it was so much fun. I had a helper, a professional show person helping me, but we won so much. I had no idea really? what was happening half of the day. Yeah, you brought home quite a, uh, quite a, a collection of trophies and ribbons, and it was really fun, and everyone loved my stallion, which was really cool. People kept coming up to me. Who is he? Where did you get him? Blah, blah, blah. And um, yeah, it was really fun. I was like, oh, and they were such nice people, mostly small families who had, you know, two or three little horses that their horse, their family just shows. And it wasn't what I thought. I thought it would be in, more intimidating than it was. And it was, it was actually really fun. Yeah, it's a lot of blue ribbons there. Yeah. If, if it's okay with you, when this posts, I'll uh, put up some of your photos from that. Oh, fun! Yeah. On the on the Facebook page. So if you want to see Amy's horses, just uh, maybe take a look at the Facebook page this week. There were some very, very, very pretty horses. So. Yeah, it was fun. So yeah, congratulations on that. Thank you. You guys, I think I'm doing something wrong. No. Like, yeah. What's here. up? Like, I need some adult skills. I have typically in the past taken Dayquil by putting the two thing gel cap thingies in my mouth and swallowing them. <laughs> it's not doing any good. Oh, am I supposed because... to be putting one up each nostril and waiting for it to dissolve? What am I doing wrong? <laughs> well, You're taking prevent the sneeze, I, I would say. Tracy, don't you think it's because <laughs> they have horrible? phenylephrine now? <laughs> huh? Don't you think it's because they have phenylephrine now and they used to have Sudafed? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, go I to the pharmacy and my... get Sudafed. You just you have to like show your ID so they know you're not cooking meth. Yeah, and just... yeah, but you make can make sure get you don't real... try to buy it. You know, when you travel all the way across the United States and, <clears throat> and try to get some more, and they're gonna be like, "No, you just bought some yesterday in Colorado." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I, I, I phenylephrine is like a joke, and Sudafed like drains your sinuses. So that's well, my opinion. I'm miserable and I have a virus Aww. in my rhino, so bleh. No. <laughs> but you can try shoving them up your nose. Did you say a virus nose. that's the size of a rhino? Is that what you said? Well, that's what it feels like, but I bas I actually said I have it in my rhino. I thought yeah. the rhino would have fleed after that sneeze. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the medical advice. I'm going to hold the microphone right up to my mouth next time I sneeze. <laughs> Oh gosh! <laughs> There's your free medical advice, folks. We will not tease Karen anymore about her sneezing, <laughs> her change in voice for this this one segment. 
<laughs> say i don't usually take the pills for, for well we i usually get the we usually get the generic but i like the stuff in the cup that tastes awful when you drink it but it works though it, but it seems to work and it seems to work pretty quickly just pour it over ice put a little salt or sugar around the rim <laughs> <laughs> little uh little, is that the wrong do i have the wrong idea tomato. there as well <laughs> no i just do the nyquil shooters you know <laughs> Uh, okay listeners if we haven't lost you yet (laughs) we're gonna be talking today about the book of esther we're gonna do about the first half today i think now uh you will recall that we have been talking about the israelite nation as they got carried away to babylon we've seen some of them come back to judah and jerusalem now but as we get into esther we realize that not everybody came back. In fact, a lot of people, it seems, kind of got comfortable while they were away and decided to stick around. And some of them even went a little further to the east instead of uh, even just right there in Babylon. So, yeah, I I dug into that a little bit and kind of laid out a little timeline of what was going on over all this. And And I don't know if you guys remember, but in the first wave of captivity where Nebuchadnezzar came and took the Israelites out of Jerusalem, he he took the royalty and the noble families. That's the way the Bible described it. I actually, this week, dug into, um, you know, sort of secular historical records, and I, and I found out that one of the intentions of Nebuchadnezzar's style of war, when they were going to leave a puppet regime in place, was to take the intellectuals as well. So the, 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 and the idea was that the people left behind wouldn't have enough brains to stand up and form a, a revolt. But anyway, here's the basic timeline of what, we, of what happened. So Nebuchadnezzar, so if you think back to the statue of, the statue of, of Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon was the head of gold, right? So Nebuchadnezzar had been on a rampage across the world and he, and he, he, sort of completed his run in Jerusalem. So he had plowed his way through the Sumerians, the Scythians, and Western Syria. And then at the end of that run of battle, he destroyed Jerusalem in two days. That was on March 15 and 16 of the year 597 BC. He took Jehoiachin, left Zedekiah as a puppet king and took the royal court, the intellectuals of the land, and the nobles off. So the first wave, remember there were three waves of captivity. So in the book of Esther, we we meet Mordecai, Mordecai, however you pronounce it, which is which is Esther's cousin, and he's raised her, and he was in that first wave. So keep that in mind. He was either of a noble family or he was an intellectual in the in the country because keep that in mind as we see his work in Susa unfold. So then Cyrus the Great came in. So that was in 597. So then you fast forward to 537. Here comes Cyrus the Great of the Medes and Persians. And this is where, if you go back to that statue, the chest, the chest and shoulders of silver um start so cyrus the great comes in and overthrows babylon in 539 bc and defeats belshazzar who's the grandson of nebuchadnezzar so there's kind of your timeline 
And now you fast forward to this, to the book of Esther, and you've got Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, also known as the King of Kings, also known as Pharaoh of Egypt. Like this guy was like a serious conqueror. And he was a grandson of Cyrus the Great who overthrew Babylon. So this is like, he ruled from about 486 to 465. And he was about seven years. So Esther 1 here says that he was about seven years into his reign when all of this business happened with Esther. So he would have been about 50 years old because he died when he was 54 in 465. So anyway, that was basically that. And this is the same guy who went and fought the Spartans in the famous Battle of, Battle of Thermopylae in 480 BC. So yeah. anyway, um, Xerxes, the, Xerxes the Great was kind of, um, he was famous for being a womanizer. And he was um, famous for being, for having a terrible temper. And um, there's one story that has always kind of stood out to me about his invasion of Greece, which, by the way, his father, uh, Darius, had actually started the clash with Greece. And so when Xerxes took up that battle call, he was trying to simply follow up on his father's work. But there was one point where his <clears throat> armies were trying to go across the channel of Hellespont. and there had been a terrible storm and the channel was no longer crossable. And so it was a big shortcut. Like if you had to go all the way around, it was a very, very long journey. And so a storm had made the channel impassable. And so he called up his engineers and was like, Hey, battle engineers, we need a solution. And so the team of engineers designed a system of pontoons where they tried to get the, battle equipment through the wrecked channel. It didn't work. And this is an example of Xerxes' temper. When it didn't work, Xerxes did several things. He had the sea flogged. Yes, I read about that too. Is that not yeah. bizarre? Yeah, he had he the sea the flogged sea. and then he dropped shackles into the sea just to let it know that it was now his prisoner. And then he had his entire team of engineers beheaded. So then he called up another team of people and said, okay, find me a way across this. Well, the second team of engineers did better and they actually got across the channel. So I don't know if you guys, did you guys read about his history of how he came to the throne at all? Mm -mm. So he was actually second in line to the throne by birth order. So he had a half brother who was older than him. But yeah, I read his, about that. I did read yeah, that. But yeah, but his half-brother's mom was a commoner, whereas his mom was this late, what was her name? A t a t I don't remember. Atossa, something like that? A t mm, no, I think I, 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 I should have written that down. Anyway, his mother was the daughter of Cyrus the Great, so he, had, he was younger, but he had more royal bloodline, so they gave him... The throne. Anyway, I um I learned a, a really a bunch of interesting things, but I'll stop talking now. <laughs> if it, if they become pertinent, I'll put them in later. But I learned some very interesting things about him. That was a huge part of why it was so interesting, though, because you know you think about 
regular history or secular history and our story fits directly into that and especially like if you love the movie 300 you know mm-hmm. here we are right after that battle most likely he comes home and he's having this enormous party and then his wife won't dance for his company and you know and it's, it's just kind of an interesting thing to think about you know where we are in in history and especially because our culture is much more steeped in regular history than in that. And then the other thing that kind of stood out to me was where we are in biblical history, because um, Ezra fits right into this. So Ezra, well, only, let's see, what I read was only 50,000 of the Jews who had been taken into the captivity decided to go home. And the rest dispersed throughout this, you know, Near Eastern culture. And um, that's who Mordecai is, or Mordecai, and he uh, is one of these leaders in this, or, you know, he's kind of an official in the court. And 16 years after the first Feast of Purim, which is what this whole story leads up to, uh, is, is when we have the last part of the book of Ezra. So Ezra uh, 6 and 7 like this book fits in between chapter six and seven of Ezra, which was interesting to try to fit it all together. Yeah. Well, I just, I wanted to take a moment to just say that I, I really liked looking at the men in the movie 300. That was all. <laughs> okay. So that's the end of my contribution. Of that's a lot of Dayquil coming through. <laughs> there was probably a lot of cgi with that because some of those guys when you see them in uh regularly they're they're rather skinny <laughs> yeah okay so yeah so we've gotten some context now that of what's going on here and the story starts in the third year of of uh xerxes reign or ahasuerus which depending on uh i guess which which <laughs> whether you were hebrew or uh or persian and i th- thought it was kind of weird i tried to see if there was like some specific name were um meaning to the word ahasuerus but my concordance didn't say anything all it said is it's xerxes xerxes so i was a little curious about why the hebrews would have given him their own name but um i don't know they did so, so. one one thing i read was that in the septuagint they call him let's see in the septuagint they call him artaxerxes his name in his court was most likely Xerxes, and the Jewish name can be derived from Xerxes, Ahasuerus. And, yeah. and there's, I guess there's some crossover of some of the letters. And so it just, you know, as the Bible got translated into Greek uh, later on to make the Septuagint, um, there were just some changes that occurred. So, yeah. yeah, that was my understanding is that the difference between uh, Ahasuerus and Xerxes and Artaxerxes was the language. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So no, uh, no difference in, in meaning or anything like that. Just uh different pronunciation, probably largely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is, it starts in the third year of his reign. So uh, this is about 483 BC then. And he holds a feast. It's, it's calls it a feast. It lasts for 180 days. So this is basically a party that lasts for almost half a year. And 
There, there, there's some question about was it an actual 180 day party? Was it just lots of showing off? Because basically, what's happening here is Xerxes is really he's showing off. He's showing off his wealth. He's just it's like 180 days for everybody just to see how awesome Xerxes is. And I don't know if that'd be considered a party, that's like just a display. Yeah, stuff. After a while, it become I think kind of boring. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but right. more so, elephants, right? More zebras. Yeah, I think. Uh, well, like uh, oh, more gold. <laughs> <laughs> like like Karen alluded to him, mean, he was very. I, you know, you could tell this guy's just got an ego, the yeah. size of of the world. You know, and uh, so and he's just showing off for a full half a year, and then he finishes it off with. Um, well, go ahead, Karen. Well, that I was just going to say what you were just starting to say. He finishes off a half a year party with a seven day party. So yeah, this yeah. Is, this is um, this was kind of interesting the way it's described. It says he gave a banquet that lasted seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who are in the citadel of Susa. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of interesting. And then down on verse 10, it says, On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine, Mm -hmm. and I had to stop there and just kind of think about that, because if I had had been drinking for a half a year straight, followed by seven days even straighter, this would read, On the seventh day, at the end of a half a year, when Karen was lying on the floor comatose from the <laughs> You see, like what this man's liver, what is wrong with him? Yeah. <laughs> well, it, well maybe you know, that's why he only lives to be 54. Uh, there you <laughs> go. There you stuff. go. Yeah, but it, you know, it was funny because in verse eight it talks about how drinking at the party was not compulsory. So generally speaking, usually when they would have a party. Like everybody was required to drink. It's like the and even times if the king was drinking, you had to drink. You had to drink. It's like a big drinking game. Yeah, and so everybody's basically getting rip roaring drunk for seven days. It sounds like, and but here he didn't say they had to do that, which is an interesting. It's 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 this interesting thing about about his character where it's like on the one hand he wants everybody to think how awesome he is but then on the other hand it seems like he does give a lot of leeway where other kings we've seen in the past didn't cuz he's like you know it seems like we've talked before about how the Jews were basically able to keep their own religion although they were pulled away they weren't allowed to live in Jerusalem but they were basically allowed to live their lives um but then here he's got this party where usually everybody would be forced to get drunk. And he's saying, yeah, you don't have to do that if you don't want to. I was having a discussion with a friend one time and and they said something so interesting to me because so often in the Bible, when it, you know, it, it'll talk about wine. Uh, and I just never thought about this before. Um, wine in the Bible is naturally fermented like it's just fermented and it's not until like the 1700s that we start to get distillation techniques Mm -hmm. so when we think about um the wine in the bible it's not as hardcore as Mm. distilled alcohol you know like multiple you know you know you never get 20 proof uh so so this is interesting to me in light of the fact that it says when the king was merry with wine 
So he's not passed out on the floor because he's been drinking vodka, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I just thought that was an aside that kind of well, important to think about. It, it is interesting because that's, I mean, that's, I think it's an interesting point just biblically in general, because there's always this, there's a big old debate going on all the time about when, you know, it says wine and some people are like, no, they were drinking fresh grape juice. And you're like, really? Because how long would that stuff have stayed fresh? You know, right. it would have it, turned about a it's week. Good. Yeah, it's not going to stay fresh that long. And so when we get to the story of Jesus turning the water to wine, we'll talk about that kind of stuff. But you guys, you just got to, you got to take some real context in the thing and go, okay, was everybody actually drinking fresh grape juice? No, that just really doesn't probably make sense. Well, one of the interesting things about Xerxes that I learned was, so Cyrus, his grandfather had abolished slavery. So even though these guys were roaring across the countryside, taking over other nations, his grandfather had abolished slavery. And, and uh, Xerxes had maintained that policy. So, so had Darius. And so this was a slavery-free kingdom. And Xerxes, one of his most famous policies was that every citizen, whether captured or natural born, had the right to be happy. So, <laughs> wow, that's drinking. interesting. So in this case, it turned into a half a year of voluntary drinking games, and we were okay. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it is a very interesting thing that, you know, you see the one side, like you were talking about, of him of being, like, crazy and you go flog the sea, you know, and then on the other hand, hey, just be happy. You know, and in fact, you know, in the movie 300, not to make this aside too far, but there is some allusion to that because the, he's like, he's like, you know, I'm kind. If you just, if you will just bow down to me, everything will be great. Yep. Are you, you actually me, using that idiotic movie as any kind of reflection of reality? It is a historical You're the one that was watching man. the guys. <laughs> oh, reality oh. check. Uh oh, boom. <laughs> they're pretty <laughs> all those greek guys with you know with the with the scottish accents and oh <laughs> 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 uh, but but uh, but uh, you know i mean it's not yeah i don't it didn't seem like he was trying to oppress he just wanted it's like he just wanted power he just wanted power and influence but without it didn't seem like he really just felt the need to force things i don't know that's just my impression well, maybe maybe that's partly because we have been privy to what totalitarian states look like. Like by yeah. the time we come along in history, um, people have tried to control every thought that oh, another shit. person has. And government control over thought processes is, you know, that's that's new in the last 200 years. And then the other thing is um, back to that Vashti, though, doesn't seem to have much choice. And True. and then here we re-enter the heart of the story, which is the queen is asked to bring her her beautiful body before his guests and dance, and she is compelled to do so. Well, she's supposed to, uh, right. but uh, yeah, she's she's having her own feast, which is already interesting to me because I was reading it. It's not like it was prohibited; women couldn't do. It's not like it's not like women necessarily were not allowed to do anything. Uh, I was reading that, you know, some of them even owned businesses and were, you know, employers of men and stuff. And so it's not like women were specifically oppressed, but yet in the home, and as we're going to find out here in the home, it was expected that the man was the head and that was supposed to remain that way. And so when Vashti is like, it's interesting to me, she's having this 
feast off to the side while while uh, Xerxes is doing his thing. And then when she is called, she says no. And so mm-hmm. that's just a, it's just an interesting but, thing going on there. there. It's like there must have been something going on underneath there where there was maybe a little lack of respect between the two. Yeah, it's know? 180 days of parading this stuff and she's bored. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's it. Yeah, yeah. Amy, I was, well, first of all, an observation, if I had just feasted for 180 days, I would not be at my best physically. So that would be (laughs) not a time to show me off. Just saying. (laughs) But Amy, I was actually curious where you got the idea that she was called to dance. Yeah, that's not in there. That's not in there. Interesting. That's funny, too, because I hate it when people do that. Like, in the story of, um, you know, Adam and Eve, it the, what the Bible actually says is like people will say, well, Eve wandered off from her husband. Yeah. And then what the Bible actually says is she handed the fruit to her husband who was with her. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so my bad. I didn't even realize I had. Done <laughs> you're that. you're probably thinking of um, Herod and mm. what was his stepdaughter's name? Salome. Yeah. Yeah. Salome. <laughs> so you might be you might be mixing the two. Yeah, that's but, probably my, but but to go to what this says, my understanding. Okay, so the exact words. Let's see which version shall I read? Um, I'll read New King James. Yep, just to behold her beauty. That's all it says here. No, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded a whole list of eunuchs with horrible names who served in the palace of King <laughs> to bring. That's what my version says. I don't know to bring <laughs> Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials for she was beautiful to behold so my understanding of that has always been that all she was wearing was her crown yeah that seems to be the tradition that that she is that factual i don't know but i think any woman with any sense of self-dignity much less after a half a year of feasting would be like no today's not really my best day i'm not going or yeah. some fermented wine that caused a little blo- bit of bloating. Yeah, there's some there's some bloating <laughs> happening here. Yeah. Well, back to your point, Matt. That business with, you know, first of all, he doesn't behead her. You mm-hmm. know, so he's not that despotic. Yeah. And also, you know, he his wise men come up with this plan, and the plan is to send out a decree that says wives shall honor their husbands. So yeah. it's it's almost humorous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's what they come up with. They don't, you know, they don't behead her. Right. Yeah, I'm a little curious because all it says is that basically she's her her royalty is stripped from her. Right. Uh, uh, it's unclear really what happens to her beyond that. I don't know if she gets to. Uh, I don't. I don't know. It didn't really say like she was kicked out of the palace it necessarily. Says- it says Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. And my thought with his, the size of his harem, my thought was, whew, what a relief. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. But no, it, it like, so that, so she, he orders her to be brought by a panel of eunuchs with terrible names. She says, no, he consults with the men who, help advise him and they all decide that if that if if word of her rebellion gets out no man will be able to rule his house yep and so mm-hmm. an edict is written that all women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest yep. and 
there we go. In verse 22, it says, he sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I am rolling my eyes right now. <laughs> so everyone knows. I knew you would. I know. <laughs> and it's just that it's just that sense of thinking, yep, duly noted. <laughs> my liberated little women women's heart is just going pitter pat at the idea of being dominated like this. <laughs> but like I said, like I said, it seems like it was mostly in the home where the man was supposed to have have mm -hmm. this authority. It's like generally in public, it seems it seems like from what I was reading that women were given a lot more uh, a, a lot more. Oh, what's the word I want to use? Because nothing I say is going to sound good. A lot more respect. leeway. Respect. To, oh, that's more res yeah. Hey, that, that, see if I would have said freedom. that, it would have sound better. So, uh, but yeah, more freedom, more respect, more uh, ability to 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 function in society, as as well as even above sometimes uh, uh, men. I mean, because they owned businesses, they they employed men. So, um, but in the house, it was supposed to be this way. <laughs> So that makes me think, though, about the position that Queen Esther is in. So here's this girl, Hadassah, and she is, you know, probably a young virgin Jewish girl and most likely an observant uh, Jew, an Orthodox Jew, you know. So she's like a, a religious kid. And here she is brought before the king. And here's this story of this young woman being brought into a situation which is essentially a Persian king's uh harem like that's what she is now she's part of the harem of a persian king and and that changes the story a lot like you know people often look at the bible and think well you know everything's not as nice as it was in bible times and it's like have you read the bible <laughs> right because this poor kid gets sucked into the the harem of a persian king and on nights when he calls her you know he has she has to go to him and you know, it's an interesting story because we get so many details. We get the names of the of the eunuchs who are taking care of the women. We get to find out that they have months of preparation where they do special baths and where they, you know, use cosmetics and blah, blah, blah. So it's like spa treatments for these young ladies so that they'll be pleasing to the king. Um, but I guess it's just super interesting to me in light of the fact that a child who has been raised in a very orthodox situation is suddenly put in a very very sexual um situation and mm -hmm. and that that makes you wonder what her life was like and one of the things i read said you know these women you know esther may have had children but um a normal life where she would have had an orthodox you know believing husband and children it was taken from her in this moment yeah so basically Later, chapter two starts off later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided. So in other words, you know, when he's no longer mad at Vashti, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed. And then his personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king, because I'm sure he didn't have enough in his harem. So this was a necessary step here. Mm -hmm. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province there's 127 provinces in the realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of susa right so 
so these these girls are brought in. Mordecai tells Hadassah, you know, don't say who you don't say that you're a Jew. But it says she had a lovely figure and she was beautiful and that Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So she's brought in. She's put under the care of the head eunuch of the virgins, right? So the harem is divided into two sections. There's there's one eunuch that oversees the virgins and their preparation. And then as the girls are prepared, then they go in one at a time, spend a night with the king. And then after that, they go into the harem of the concubines. So she, Esther, makes a good impression on, how do you say this guy's name? Heg, Heg, Hegai, Hegai? But where are we? <laughs> um, in verse eight, her of Hegai or something. Yeah. So she pleases him. He gives her the best room. He gives her special food. He gives her <clears throat> seven female attendants. But this beauty regimen that all these girls to it says in verse twelve it says before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete twelve months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. This is how she would go in to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem in the care of another poorly named eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. And then she would never go back to the king unless he summoned her by name. So first of all, these girls are young and beautiful already. And then second of all, they go through a year's worth of beautification and they all reek of myrrh. Like, does mm. anyone here actually like the smell of myrrh? I don't. I like, don't. I realize, you know, wise men and, oh, they brought myrrh. I don't like the smell. I don't know that oh, I don't smell it. Steep me in oil of myrrh for six months. I wouldn't feel cute. I'd feel stinky. But, I mean, that's just whatever. <laughs> I don't anyway, know that I've ever smelled it. It's quite a process. Like this is this is a remarkable process. A year of beautification and preparing for one night. Yeah. Yeah. And then sort of like um like Amy was saying, you know, we try to think of the Bible as this clean th place where you, t you know, you, you you tell your kid the the story, the kids the stories, and and, and you know everything's going to be clean and easy and nice. Uh, you read between the lines here. This was a this was a sexual thing. But this Esther. girl had a personality. I mean, listen to what yeah. it says about her. It says Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. That's not because she was good looking. Yeah. Right. Right. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. So he's about fifty here. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. He set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and when you see how he treats her later, you could tell that the, there was more going on than them just sleeping together that night. I think that probably did happen, but <laughs> but like you say, there was something yeah. about Esther that that was clearly attractive beyond just her looks because looks alone are not enough to make a guy like this be willing to let her have run of the palace and do what she wants in ways that usually would be considered illegal uh, and you know i mean she was risking her life with that we'll get to that but so yeah there's there's more going on with her than just a sexual prowess i guess 
Well, I, um, I don't know what was different about her, but, you know, Mordecai is an interesting character and he's intelligent and he's willing to speak up when there's a problem and she's been raised by him. So she's probably someone who makes eye contact and someone who is good at conversation. And I mean, I imagine these things, none of it may be true. I don't know, but I, I do feel like people respond to a person who, uh, is, interactive and mm -hmm. you know someone who just goes in and has sex with his harem all the time may have responded to an individual who was a person yeah and had yeah. a conversation yeah exactly yeah yeah so yeah let's talk a little bit about mordecai or mordecai i've always said mordecai but it probably is mordecai i don't i don't really know um now what i got from this from him is that actually was his great grandfather kish who was captured during the reign of Jehoiachin of Judah. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it wasn't, I don't think it was more, I, my guess is Mordecai, I'm going to say Mordecai. It's just easier. <laughs> so we'll, we'll pick one. Yeah. Uh, you guys can say how you want. I'm just going to say Mordecai. But um, my guess is he was probably born in, in, in the Babylonian exile. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so, um, so I mean, this is all he's ever really known, and now he's finding himself in Susa, where or Shushan, depending on on which way you say that. But there, there's some interesting stuff with his background because he is a Benjamite, and this is going to come into play in a little bit. He is a Benjamite because which gives him ties all the way back to King Saul. He is the one who raised uh, Esther. Um, known, I guess, her Hebrew name would have been Hadassah, which is really kind of a pretty name. Um, I should have looked it up to see what it meant, but, uh, it means Myrtle. Oh, that's right. I knew that. I did know that. And Esther, I think means star, yes. but, uh, um, but yeah, so she is his cousin and he has raised her after her parents died. I don't know how, we don't really know how she died or how they died. I mean, I'm sorry, but, um, but anyway, that's, that's kind of cool to hit that they have this relationship where he was able to raise her. So I noticed one thing, there was this time lapse. So earlier, um, we were, uh, like when this whole thing with Vashti happened, it was the third year of his reign. And now, mm -hmm. by the time Esther meets him, it's the seventh year of his reign. So did you notice in chapter 2, verse 19, it says, when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Did you guys notice that? The second time you're, you're right i, I, like I missed maybe that part they actually maybe they actually went through and took one round of girls and then there's a year of treatments right beauty treatments where they all reek of myrrh and then mm. they go do their thing with the king and he is is or is not interested in making them queen and then they go off and become a concubine and this is the second round of that happening so several years have passed while this whole thing is happening so Esther gets caught up in the second round, but why do you guys think that Mordecai told her not to to keep her family background and nationality a secret? So if Jews were accepted and respected, and like in a little bit, we'll find out that they're that they are allowed their own culture. Because when Haman rears his ugly head and decides to cause trouble, one of the things he points out is there's a people here who don't live according to your laws. Like they live within their own culture here in your country. So clearly this was allowed. Mm -hmm. So why keep it a secret then? Yeah, that was a little interesting. I think maybe some of that plays out with Haman here in a bit, but I don't know. Interesting. Well, I wonder if it's sort of like what happens in 
um, you know, in the times of the Romans, because, you know, the Jews are good citizens. Um, they're free within their, you know, to conduct business. They own businesses, et cetera, in that culture. <clears throat> and yet they're slightly countercultural in that they recognize one God higher than Caesar. And that becomes a problem. And it becomes a problem throughout all of human history whenever anyone sees God as above the state. And, you know, that's, that's always an issue, always an issue throughout history. Mm. And, and I think Haman is using that, that single principle. Haman is using that because he knows that they do not admire Xerxes exactly the same way everyone else does. Yeah. Well, so Esther is made queen. A big old feast is made to celebrate her coronation. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's another party, another party in <laughs> Susa. Uh, Susa is the party capital at this point, I think. But, but then Mordecai learns that two of, of uh, some, probably some of those poorly named eunuchs are plot, <laughs> <laughs> are plotting to kill the king. <laughs> I do think it does, it's interesting that we have their names though. Like to me, that gives a lot of credence to the book. Yeah, yeah. That we have uh, the name of some random eunuch, you know? Right, right. Um, yeah, are they named? Let me see. Not that it matters that much, but now I'm curious. Um, I, when I was reading that, I was thinking, <laughs> oh, what a way to get your name in the Bible. Like, you get mentioned one time. Like, you're one of the list of seven who was sent to go get Queen Vashti. You know what I mean? Or Yeah. What a strange <laughs> way to end up in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, so these two, they're named Bigthan and Teresh. That's the way I'm going to say it. They're doorkeepers. For some reason, uh, they're they are mad at Xerxes and they want yeah. him dead. I uh, don't know. I don't know what happened. Um, other than he, you know, he made them eunuchs. That'd be enough to set me off. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fair. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but they they want to they want to kill the king. And I think Mordecai learns from learns about this because he has this habit. Of just hanging around the the front door of the palace, and so he must have overheard these guys talking about how they want to kill the king. Okay, but and, if the, but that was a Jewish custom, where the uh, they were they were like the local judges. Remember, mm -hmm. Boaz was one. Yeah, and th this was where yeah. people could bring their complaints yep. to be settled. That was a Jewish custom, and mm -hmm. so that to me that let me know that the fact that he does that let me know that the jews are very free to continue their customs within this country yeah like office hours yeah <laughs> yeah the front gate from you know nine to noon come come levy your complaints your concerns i'll be there yeah well, well so like the elders the elders are available to hear yeah. the tapes yeah, mm -hmm. it's more just like a, a local judges thing. Yeah. Off yeah. yeah. But so this is how Mordecai is able to overhear this this plot and passes it along. It's and it's confirmed and the eunuchs get hanged. And the event is written in the records, and that comes into play a little bit later too. Because um <laughs> well, we see a little bit more of, of Xerxes' ego come out later on that one. So now we get introduced to this guy named Haman. And Haman, it, we're told right off the bat, is an Agagite. And for the life of me, for the longest time, I was like, why do we care what that means? This is important because this 
is a throwback to King Agag of the um, now I'm losing the word, uh, the Amalekites. Mm-hmm. So if you remember the Amalekites, God had told the Jews back in the, well, the, the Hebrews, I don't know if they were called Jews. No, they wouldn't have been told the Hebrews go wipe out the Amalekites, kill everybody. But Saul decided to keep, keep King Agag. Right. Brought him back, and then one of the prophets, I'm missing his name in my brain right now. Samuel. Samuel. Was it Samuel? Okay, thank you. Samuel went ahead and killed him, you know. And but so we, there was, there had been a feud going on, something going on between the Amalekites and the Hebrews now, it seems, for centuries. Oh, not and, just an Amalekite. This is an actual, like, from the line of King Agag. Yeah. And so, so this seems to be at least a piece of why Haman is so irritated when Mordecai won't bow down to him because Haman has been promoted to some high official status. Some people call him a vizier. He's definitely a high uh, advisor. We don't get a, a specific title for him, but he is like right next to the king in terms of uh, of authority. In verse two, we get a little bit of a glimpse of what Mordecai's role is in Susa, it says all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Right. That's mm-hmm. a clue. So Mordecai is born here for whatever reason. He's kept quiet about his Hebrew heritage, but he has been promoted. He is one of the royal officials at the king's gate. He is under this command and he does not do it. Yeah, there's some specific parts put out here where Mordecai won't bow to Haman because Mordecai is a Jew. And I I just can't help thinking that this has something to do with that with that feud with between the Malachites and uh and 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 the Jews. But because Haman cannot stand this, he is so irritated with Mordecai. He decides that he wants to destroy all the Jews in the entire kingdom. And so he gets together with, uh, it says they they decide to, to decide a day they're going to do this by casting what they call poor or, or like casting lots. This is where the Jewish tradition, the holiday of Purim comes from, of this, of uh, ultimately, spoiler alert, the Jews escape from the uh, from this destruction, Man, but don't tell them. I know. I'm sorry, but uh, <laughs> Jesus wins. You ruined it. Hey, Jesus wins. Spoiler alert. <laughs> 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 but but this is where that comes from. And I, I went to look at look at to see just what Purim is because not being Jewish, I've never celebrated it. They, they have some strange customs. I'm gonna. I, I will post some videos and stuff. <laughs> The first videos that came up, I thought it was Halloween because there's people walking on the streets in costumes and people are handing them money. Uh, there was a video I saw of, I think this was actually in Israel, some of the, uh, 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 what would you call them, Orthodox Jews with, you know, they wear the the, the hats and they have the, the, the hair coming. Uh, what do you call it? I don't know. It's not braids. But Hasidic, coming, Hasidic Jews. Yeah. You know, these guys are in a synagogue and they're praying and you know how they pray and they're in there and they're sort of rocking back and forth while I do this. Well, they're, like in the front row, there's a couple of, I'm assuming kids. I don't know. They're dressed as giraffes. 
<laughs> and they're sitting right next to each other, right in the middle. And they're there. You can see they're praying, but because they're wearing these ridiculous giraffe costumes with the big long necks, it looks like two giraffes fighting. If you've ever seen two giraffes fight, <laughs> it's hilarious. But this has become part of the tradition of Purim to to dress in costumes. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it, it, I, I was looking to a little bit, but uh, some of the reasoning behind some of it, but just a very interesting way that traditions have created a holiday now that is unrecognizable to me from what we're reading here today. I think it probably, yeah, I think if you showed this to Jews who had lived through the original, you know, Purim, they would find it unrecognizable also. But um, there are, I have heard, personally heard, a number of Jews who refer to non-Jews as goyim, refer to all goyim as animals. Okay. <laughs> like a lower, like they're not called by God, they're not set aside, they are, they are beasts, right? So there may be sort of like a tongue-in-cheek snarkiness to this triumph of the Jews over the non-Jews by the protection of God, which is what eventually happened. But we can talk more about that when we get to that chapter. Yeah. Anyway. But check this out. Like Haman wants this. He wants this so bad. He goes to the king and he says, there's a certain people dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Okay. So part of me is going, Good on the Jews. And part of me is going, yeah, but you stayed. You know, mm -hmm. you had the chance to go back and rebuild and you stayed. So it's kind of a kind of an odd thing. Yeah. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Like, Haman wants this bad. 10,000 talents of silver? Yeah. But the king takes his signet ring and tells him, keep the money, do with the people as you please. Yeah. And handing over the signet ring for this seemed... If you are, if you are an official, even if you hand your ring to your best friend, if you hand it to your mother to speak on your behalf, I think that's a terrible idea. I do, too. I mean, I, this just seems like a really, really bad piece of legislation on the part of Xerxes to say, yeah, here, here is the thing that's, that says that you are speaking on my behalf. In fact, this thing says that I said it and do whatever you want. Baffling, just baffling and horrible. Absolutely terrible. And Haman immediately, immediately sends out a decree to destroy the, the way it's written here to destroy to kill and to annihilate all the jews in one day all the jews men yep. women children everybody in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month so and this is the under their goods yeah i mean it's just like right and and there's the motivation well for people to do it yeah yeah just take yeah you can take everything you want you can so, have their stuff yeah but this is the day that was decided by casting the lots or, or the poor. I love verse 15 in chapter 3, though. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Like, up yeah. until this point, these have just been fellow citizens. Like, who cares? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's very, yeah. Yeah, that one's kind of stood out to me, too. I didn't write a specific note on it, but it was interesting that 
that's like everybody else are, is going is going what? And the king and Haman are sitting back having a having a beer, you know, and just uh, just hanging out together. Yeah, it, it, it's pretty weird. Well, word spreads. Uh, the Jews begin to mourn. I mean, they've got a little time, but because uh, when did this happen? He they cast the lots. On, okay, so yeah, on the so the this started in the first month, the month of Nissan. Mm-hmm. The lot fell on the twelfth month. Yeah. So on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. So there's almost a year's notice. Mm-hmm. Which is odd. Day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month is when this is supposed to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a lot of interesting things here that happened because I guess. I mean, apparently, I would assume, well, of course, at this point, everybody's been allowed to go back to, to Judah, and they haven't. But it says that this that mourning spreads among the Jews. And so they have a year to, to think about it and worry about it. Yet it seems like they don't leave. I mean, I suppose some probably did, but they have a whole year to think about this. And, uh, and, they, and they're worried about it. So I, I find it very interesting that even though this is a super secular book in a lot of ways, you know, we get so much information about the political setting, et cetera. Mordecai perceives what is done, tears his clothes and begins to pray. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there is a lesson right there. Like he knows who God is. He knows he's in trouble. This thing is far bigger than himself. And he has to intercede for the people. And so he doesn't hesitate to pray and to, you know, mortify himself before the Lord and say, you know, we need you right now. And I, I find that sort of the center of the story. You know, the story seems to be about Esther, but Mordecai is able to look through all of that and say, okay, God set this up for my niece or my cousin to be in this position. And I can see that because I'm on my knees. Mm-hmm. The thing I thought was interesting is Mordecai has kept his Jewish heritage to himself, and yet he dresses in sackcloth and wails loudly and bitterly in public. It says he went no further than the king's gate because he, mm-hmm. you, you couldn't go inside if, if you were dressed in sackcloth. But he, this he does publicly. All yeah. the Jews do. So at this point, you know, whatever... Whatever he had been saying among the royal officials, right? It says they questioned him every day. Why don't you bow down to Haman? Why do you disobey the king's command? It doesn't say how he answered. Well, it does. because it, it does say that he says he was Jewish, that he was a Jew. And so maybe at that point, I don't remember exactly where it was. Let me see here. Um, was it back in three? Oh, it says for he had told them he was a Jew. Yeah. So at so some I point. At that point, the gig was up. Yeah, at some point he did say. I don't bow to anybody but God. Yeah. And so as the word spreads and as the people are worried, uh, Mordecai sends a a messenger to Esther because like Karen was just saying, he didn't go into the palace at this point because he's in mourning and he's dressed in sackcloth and ashes and that wasn't allowed. But he sends somebody to uh, tell Esther about the plot because somehow or other she has been kept in the dark about it, it would seem. But Mordecai wants her to go to the king. She's in a position that nobody else is in, uh, where she has the she could potentially go to the king and talk to him. But there's a problem with that, 
because if you weren't invited to go to the king and you just showed up, there was a good chance that you would die. In fact, uh, I mean, you could go to the king if he would then hold his scepter out to you and you were allowed to come forward, you were fine. But if he decided he didn't like you there, you're done. And and uh, Esther is is um, she's a little nervous about this because, as she says, she hasn't been called to him for what was it, 30 days? Yeah. Uh, so she hasn't been called for a while, and and uh, Mordecai just wants her to go talk to him. But um, you know, in her in her nervousness, Mordecai gives her a little reminder. He says, "Don't think that you're going to escape this, because somehow or other, it's going to come out that you're a Jew, and this decree is going to come down on you too." If you remain silent, relief and deliverance from the Jews will arise from another place. Yep. Yep. But you and your father's family will perish. Yeah. Right. Yep. So this was interesting. Like he kind of like lays almost a curse on her. And who is he to do that? <laughs> you think it's a curse or you think it's just speaking reality? I mean, he like was, you know, like Amy pointed out, the, the problem occurs. The first thing he does is publicly pray and mourn and call on God. Yeah, they're assuming deliverance, right? And so they're he's assuming, assuming deliverance, deliverance because... And that, right, and if Esther is the mechanism through which that deliverance comes because she's perfectly positioned, great. If she chooses not to take action, he's that sure that they'll be delivered that he says deliverance will come by another method. Mm -hmm. But I think at that point it would be the Jews who track, track Esther down to make sure she doesn't live another day. Maybe. That sounds horrible, but you know what I mean? Maybe. killer? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, you you had the opportunity and you didn't do anything, and so poo on you. Yeah, that's a very good possibility. I hadn't really considered that, but... Mm -hmm. I just don't want us to fail to read these lines uh, from 14 to uh, 17. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. For if you altogether hold your peace, then shall enlargement and deliverance arise for the Jews from another place, like Karen read, but you and your father's house will be destroyed. And who knows whether you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mm -hmm. Then Esther told Mordecai her answer, go and gather all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast you for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I also and my maidens will fast likewise. So that's interesting, right? The concubines of Persia are fasting for the deliverance mm -hmm. of the Jews. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I will go in unto the king which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. And I just, I just didn't want us to fail to read those. Yeah, no, that, that, fabulous. yeah, that is a huge statement to make. And it is so inspiring to us when we are faced with, with adversity of, uh, mm -hmm. of uh, maybe this is exactly why you were born. Yeah. You know, and I think, going back to what we said before, I think that gives a little testament to exactly Esther's character is that, you know, the people around her, you know, saw her light shine. And like we're saying, even the, her, her maids, the, even mm -hmm. though they were Persian, they were still following suit of what she had done, you know, just by her character and, you know, seeing how she lived her life, they're willing to, to fast and everything else. So I think that speaks yeah. testaments to her character. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. But don't you think this is true of all of us? 
I mean, God's Which plan, part? like he knows, he knows what's going to happen in the world and around us before it happens. Don't you think all of us are placed where he wants us? Yeah. I mean, it's probably oh, not this but dramatic. I think that's like, I'll, that's I'll probably never be called to save a nation. <laughs> At least I hope, I'm, I hope I won't. But don't you think all of us are placed where we can do the best job for God possible? I suppose so. Very, very, I mean, very possibly. Um, yeah, we're not all called to do the great things like like save an entire nation by by braving the king, but maybe it's doing a podcast or <laughs> teaching a class or or giving somebody a buck, you know, who knows? Who knows? Uh, are, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't think we should, we don't necessarily have to be, okay, God, I'm ready for my great moment. But if we're willing, uh, is it, is it, logical is it okay to say that uh you know god is going to do with me what he needs to do and i'm going to be willing to do it and he's placed me here for it so i'm just waiting to see what it's going to be yeah i you know yeah but so many aspects of our life we can look at this and you know maybe maybe this maybe this is my time maybe this is what i'm here for maybe this is uh you know whatever whatever happens to me after this is up to god and if you're and if you can be okay with that I think that's a it's a it's a place that I would like to find myself in an ability to do that. And I hope that I hope that when occasions rise that I that I uh, that I perform well. Don't know if I always do. I know we all, we don't always. That's the point. The point is, you know, that it's an inspiring moment because, you know, here she is in a very odd situation. This is not a situation a young Jewish girl would have dreamed of. Like when she was little, she probably wasn't hoping to be part of the king's harem. Um, and then suddenly, yeah. right? Like suddenly, she's in a position to save her people, um, and that's that's so unique in history. And yet, I, so that's why it's so inspiring because we look at our lives sometimes and we think, "What is happening? Where am I? What am I supposed to be doing? I don't even know how God is leading in this." And then you turn around and you're like, "God is right there," and He says, "No, you're exactly where you're supposed to be." I'm right here. And I love that verse. It's so important in my life. So that's all. I just wanted to say all that. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it is interesting because we don't, you know, how, how many of us really end up exactly where we expected to when we were a kid, you know, I mean, when I was a kid, I, I wanted to be a fireman, you know, and I never went anywhere near being a fireman <laughs> as, as, as life went on, Not, you know, so, so. You know, you just don't know where you're going to end up. Right. And uh, and and, um, you know, as we mature as Christians and we're we're willing to just let God do with us what what he will. uh, I think we find ourselves in in some interesting positions. Well, Esther does go in, in front of Mordecai or excuse me, Esther does go in front of Xerxes. And as we've said before, something about her personality must have softened his heart toward her in a way that others were not because she was very much in danger here of getting killed but instead he sees her and it, I, you know in the picture in my head is he's like oh hey it's my queen and he holds out the scepter because this is the law and come on over let's talk and and uh and and she gets to she gets to approach the king 
Do you think maybe she just smiled a lot? Like, was she one of those people who just had that sweet smile on her face? And and maybe, you know, I mean, it works with all human personalities. There are people that you just find very, very approachable because they just smile. I don't know. Maybe, you know, I suppose we all know some people who are just easier to, you just can't help liking them. You yeah, know, exactly. uh, I'm probably not one of those. I'm probably not one of those people. of everything. Yeah. You know humor talkativeness you know and yeah, yeah, yeah. i think she mm. probably had the whole package yeah i'm i'm definitely not one of those people either but um but i think <laughs> she i i mean to me i think exactly what you guys are saying i think that it sounds like the king just plain liked her mm. yes, like he exactly. doesn't have to be in love with her or in lust with her right he's just happy to see her right yeah so that, exactly. that speaks, it speaks well it's the same repeating theme like as a young virgin probably way in over her head she's brought in the head eunuch takes her under his wing gives her special treatment right mm. then everyone who meets her likes her like there's something special about her yeah yeah she's obviously yeah just a very likable person i think it'd be interesting to know it'll be interesting to meet her someday you know find out find out what she's like well she decides that what she is going to do, she doesn't come right out with it. She invites the king and Haman to a banquet that she's going to have at her own house. And <laughs> I love it because they get they come to the banquet. Sounds like, oh, hey, cool. We're going to go to this banquet. And and while at the banquet, she invites them to another banquet. <laughs> so she's still a little nervous to think about what she's got to do. Because uh, that's uh, kind of yeah. how I took that, also. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, we've talked about Veggie Tales before on here. There's a pretty good uh, Queen Esther Veggie Tales on here. Vashti gets gets banished because she won't make the king a sandwich. But uh, <laughs> 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 but but. You know, the, the, the depiction of Esther here is very much that she's just very, very nervous to, to, to come right out and say exactly what's going on. And I can understand this because, I mean, this guy is, you know, Haman is is like second in command of the entire kingdom, it sounds like. And to make an accusation against somebody like that, that's no. Yeah, that's huge. That's no small thing. And to be, you know, you're going to say this guy wants to kill me and my people and everybody. But she she does. She invites him to a second banquet that's going to happen the next day. And I adore Haman's egotistical response. Oh, <laughs> yeah, because right? as the chapter as the chapter comes to a close, chapter five comes to a close. He's feeling all good about himself. He goes and, until he sees Mordecai as he's as he's leaving the banquet. He sees Mordecai who still won't bow to him. And that just sets him off again but he he brags to his wife and his friends about his position with the king and especially proud that he was invited to esther's banquet and when you're reading in between the lines of this you're like well, you are such a dope because you have no idea you have no idea why you were even invited there in the first place and, and yeah i love it he's just he is so he is so proud of himself and he doesn't realize what his position is and he just can't, but yet he cannot be happy with what he has be just because of Mordecai. He sounds like such a spoiled child. 
And that's yeah. not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But mm. all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. What a child. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, that's why, <laughs> you know, is we'll, we'll get into in our next episode, you know, he's 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 setting himself up for a failure of astronomical epic proportions here. I like to think that this story is where this the saying hoist on his own petard comes from. I don't even know what a petard is. That sounds like a yeah, derogatory. That, that sounds like a derogatory word, Karen. <laughs> say, say, say the whole thing again. Hoist on his own petard. So like when you're trying to set somebody up or you're trying to get an edge or you're trying to show off in a certain way and the thing that you're trying to do turns out to be your downfall. Yeah. I've never heard that before. It's a Shakespearean thing. Oh, I've never heard that. Yeah, I'm not not familiar with that one. But so because he can't be happy and because it would seem that he's surrounded himself with yes men and apparently a yes woman and his wife. They convince him that the thing to do here is uh, to have Persian a law, Persian law says she has to be a yes wife. Just, just well, to make that hey, clear. Good point. Good point. You just reviewed that. Uh, yes. She did not fare well with that one. She did not make <laughs> she did not make a sandwich. Yeah. But they convince him that he should have a gallows made to hang Mordecai on. And this will come back on him. In a way that he probably did not even ever imagine. And uh, that is basically the end of Esther chapter 5. And I think that's probably long enough for us today. Unless something else is just eating away at you guys that we missed. No, I think that's a good spot. So next week, we will continue reading Esther. We'll finish Esther chapters, oh, what is it? 6 through 10. So, folks, while you're reading that and waiting for us, remember you can reach out to us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. Remember that you can find us on Facebook. Make sure that you share the podcast with your friends and family and relatives and neighbors. And make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so we reach you and repeat each and every week. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening. Well, bless you. Wow. Bless you.